Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Church, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're in part 2 of our series, A Call to Joy. This message called The Forwarding of the Gospel. Philippians chapter 1. Now, as we studied the first 11 verses of Philippians last week in part 1, The Fellowship of the Gospel, we established that Paul was under arrest in Rome, yet joyfully writing to the church at Philippi to thank them for their support and encouragement that they had provided by their partnership in the gospel. But as we look at the next section of chapter 1 and the forwarding of the gospel, what does Paul say is the result of his being imprisoned for Christ? Well, to state it simply, Paul says the result of his being imprisoned for Christ is that the gospel is being preached with courage and that Christ will be exalted. And it's in this sentiment that we find the big idea behind this week's message. And that's this. The secret of joy is saying, Lord, whatever comes, I want Christ to be glorified. Now, remember all the hardship that Paul went through in his life. Here's a guy that suffered for Christ, beaten, jailed on multiple occasions, shipwrecked, snake bit. I mean, most of us would have complained, gone into agonizing detail about shipwreck, chains, and mistreatment, but not Paul. His desire was to honor Christ and promote the gospel. So the first thing I want you to notice from these verses is simply this. Number one, Paul put Christ first. You know, God sometimes uses strange tools to help us move forward for the cause of the gospel. In verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know that what has actually happened to me is actually advanced the gospel. Now, that word for advance in the Greek, prokope, means forward movement to an improved state. Um, it's synonymous with furtherance, uh, progress, a new advancement. Well, in this context, you could think of it as uh, pioneering, trailblazing, or breaking new ground, the forwarding of the gospel. Well, in Paul's case, there were three tools that helped him to break new ground and take the gospel even to the elite imperial guard, which is Caesar's special troops. First of all, we see his chains, then we see his critics, and then his crisis. All right, so first of all, let's talk about Paul's chains. Uh, look at verse 12 with me, if you would. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the words fearlessly. Now, with regard to Paul's chains, I want you to notice that two things those chains gave him. First of all, contact with the lost. You see that in verse 13. Uh, specifically, we're talking about contact with the imperial guard and officials in Caesar's court. But 
Paul had a captive audience. And from here in verse 13, also later in chapter 4, verse 22, we can conclude that he won some of them to Christ. You see, the Christ-focused Christian doesn't allow circumstances to overcome him. Quite the opposite. He or she turns those circumstances into opportunities to magnify Christ and win souls. In fact, when we take Christ into every circumstance, we're going to have joy. Now, Paul was not the prisoner of Rome. He was the prisoner of Jesus Christ. That's how he described himself in Ephesians 3 and also chapter 4. And the soldiers chained to his wrist were not guards. They were souls for whom Christ died. You see, sometimes God has to put chains on his people to get them to accomplish a trailblazing advance that couldn't happen any other way. At six weeks of age, Fanny Crosby was blinded, but even as a child, she determined not to be confined by the chains of darkness. And she eventually became a powerful force for God through her hymns and gospel songs, 9,000 of them, in fact, some of which we still sing today. Born dead for 18 minutes, David Ring developed cerebral palsy and inherited a world of excruciating pain and physical struggles, a severe speech impediment, and constant public humiliation. Yet in the face of these seemingly insurmountable obstacles, David emerged as one of the most powerful evangelists the modern world has ever known. In fact, David will often say, I have cerebral palsy. What's your problem? You see, for him, cerebral palsy isn't a chain, but a springboard to make a gospel advance, to make a a big deal out of Jesus. Of course, it's easy to shine your light when you're surrounded by other Christians. But what about those situations like Paul's when God surrounds you with unbelievers? Are you redeeming the time? God put Paul in a spiritually dark place to be a bright light of truth and salvation. He said in Ephesians 5.16, to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So rather than lamenting the fact that your job or your school situation surrounds you with unbelievers, some of whom will undoubtedly ridicule you, are you instead rejoicing that God has planted you in a mission field that is ripe for harvest, for a gospel advance. Now think about it. What better place to shine than in a dark place? Think of the Christians who take the light of Jesus to Burning Man. Now, if you're not familiar with Burning Man, it's an annual gathering in the salt flats of the Black Rock Desert in northwestern Nevada. It's characterized by anarchy and hedonism and drug abuse and public nudity and orgies. I mean, it's a, it's a pagan's paradise. Yet there are Christians that willingly venture into that spiritually dark place each year to be Jesus to those who so desperately need it. So maybe you can't choose your coworkers or neighbors. Maybe you're forced to work alongside non-Christians at school. And no, they don't walk and talk and act and live like you do. But, you know, like Paul, those coworkers, neighbors, and classmates you're chained to aren't your captors. They're your opportunities. They're souls to be won. So Paul's chains gave him contact with the lost. But there's something else Paul's chains provided. Not only contact with the lost, but 
courage to the saved. You know, many of the believers in Rome took renewed courage when they saw Paul's faith and determination. Verse 14 says, Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord for my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Now, that Greek word for speak isn't the word that's typically used for preach. It actually means everyday conversation. Now, there's no doubt that many of the folks in Rome were discussing Paul's case. I mean, that was that was big news. But the, the Christians in Rome, who were sympathetic to Paul, took advantage of this conversation to make a big deal out of Jesus Christ. You see, discouragement has a way of spreading, but so does encouragement. So because of Paul's joyful attitude, the believers in Rome found new courage and they were emboldened to witness for Christ. So we've seen Paul's chains, but do you know what else there was to deal with? Well, there was Paul's critics. Look at verse 15. To be sure, some preach out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So, Paul's talking about two different types of evangelists and two motives that drive those two different types. There are, of course, the envious evangelists that he describes in verses 15 and 17. They preached out of rivalry and envy, driven by selfish ambition. They looked at Paul's imprisonment as an occasion to tear him down, to stir up trouble, to elevate their ministry over his. Now, Paul got more than his share of criticism. And anyone who follows Christ should prepare for criticism and, and more. Be ready to follow Paul's example. He didn't try to defend himself. He simply stayed focused on living his life for Christ and proclaiming the truth. He put Christ and his gospel first. You can't control what others think of you. You know, all you can do is run your race with faithfulness. So there were envious evangelists, but there were also empathetic evangelists. We see those in verse 16. They preached out of goodwill, driven by love. They cared about Paul and understood that he was in prison by an act of God's sovereign will, not as a result of Paul's disobedience or unfaithfulness. So were his critics causing trouble by their selfish preaching? Maybe, but so what? They were preaching Christ. And in verse 18, we see the message mattered more to Paul than the messengers or their motives. He says, what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, Paul would have preferred to have the right message for the right motives, but he placed the highest importance on the message itself. If the true gospel was preached, then Paul could rejoice. And that strategy still works today. Proclaiming the good news to people, even as we live out joyful lives before them, 
even in life's apparent chains. Like Paul, let's care more about Jesus' glory than our own, and let's rejoice continually. Well, in the verses we studied earlier, we examined Paul's chains and Paul's critics. We're about to see Paul's crisis. Yeah, so the first big point really is that Paul put Christ first. But in verses 20 through 24, we also see that, number two, Paul put others second. Look at verse 20. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. I don't know which I should choose, Paul said in verse 22. Well, that's his crisis. Paul longed to be with Jesus. He was all about Jesus, but he chose to serve the needs of others. Now, I will confess, because I am a complete geek, my favorite films of all time, without a doubt, have been, and will always be, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And though their story set in a fictional world with all manner of fantastic and mystical creatures, J.R.R. Tolkien's faith comes through in this tale of good versus evil in a powerful way. And there's several standout moments for me, moments where our heroes show their humility and loyalty and selfishness, selflessness, rather. But uh, one such moment is when the, the brave and unassuming little hobbit Samwise Gamgee, knowing that his friend Frodo Baggins lacks the strength to complete his mission by carrying himself and the evil ring of power to the fires of Mount Doom to destroy the ring, he tells him, Come on, Mr. Frodo! I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you! Come on! And Sam picks up his friend and carries him the rest of the way up the rocky foothills of Mount Doom. Now, another moment involves the character Aragorn. Now, at first, we think he's simply a bit of a nomad, a, a ranger. And only later do we realize that he's the heir to the throne of Gondor, the rightful king. And when Frodo is commissioned with the task of taking the Ring of Power to Mordor to destroy it, this man destined to be the ruler of men, willingly, humbly, makes himself subordinate to this tiny hobbit, Frodo, and pledges his protection, saying, if by my life or by my death I can protect you, I will. You have my sword. Now, really what Aragorn means is that everything he is, Everything he has, every skill he possesses, is freely offered in the service of the mission, even his very life. Well, guess what? That's the exact same pledge that Paul has made to Jesus Christ. Verse 20, he says, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And talk about a mission statement. 
But Paul didn't stop there. He added in verse 21, For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. All right, now several things stand out about Paul's declaration here in verses 20 and 21, specifically verse 21. But we see, first of all, that it's a public statement. Paul was public about his ambition to live for Christ. He gladly let others see it. And we show what's most important to us by how we live. And Paul knew that if he continued to live, it would translate into fruitful work, as he said in verse 22. See, you can't say you're living for Christ if you're not working for him. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul said that we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. So, if you're going to represent him, go public. But in addition to a public statement, Paul also made a grace-filled statement. Paul's goal was to know Christ fully and live for him. But as he'd state later in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, he hadn't attained this goal yet. Paul didn't achieve perfection, but God's grace was with him. His life for Christ still resulted in fruitful work. You see, just like Paul, our lives flow from our union with Christ. To live is Christ. But we need his grace to represent him well. Every day we should saturate ourselves in his grace and then resolve to live faithfully for him before a watching world. Not only is this statement a grace-filled statement, it's also a faithful statement. It's a faithful statement because in it, Paul revealed his steadfast attitude. I mean, do you see the power of this perspective? Kill me? I'll be with Christ. Let me live? I'll live for Christ. Make me suffer? I'll experience joy and get rewarded by Christ. That's the unstoppable mentality of the Apostle Paul. And when we're living in the grace of Jesus, empowered by his Spirit, we can share Paul's unstoppable, joyful mentality. We can live faithfully, courageously for Christ, knowing that if we die, we'll be with him. In short, either way, we can't lose. So it's a faithful statement, but then there's another aspect to it. It's a challenging statement. What about us? How do we deal with verse 21, living as Christ and dying as gain? Well, as the late great pastor Warren Wiersbe once wrote, Philippians 1.21 becomes a valuable test for our lives, for me to live as blank and to die as blank. Fill in the blanks yourself. For me to live as money and to die is to leave it all behind. For me to live as fame and to die is to be forgotten. For me to live as power and to die is to lose it all. But in Paul's moment of crisis, you know, will I die or shall I continue? He demonstrates that he demonstrates he's not only pledged to the gospel mission of Christ, but also to the well-being of the believers at Philippi. Now, note what he says. Verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. 
See, selfishness always breeds unhappiness, but selflessness breeds joy. Paul had joy because he loved others. He prayed for others, encouraged others, and sought to bring joy to others. Paul's heaven on earth was helping others. And while he longed to be with Christ, he eagerly yearned to remain and to help these believers grow in Christ. So we examine Paul's chains, Paul's critics, Paul's crisis. Of course, these all led to Paul's choice. That choice? Well, Paul put Christ first, Paul put others second, and obviously, number three, Paul put himself last. Look at verse 25. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. So think about it. As a prisoner in chains, Paul's body was not his own. His future was not his own. His reputation was not his own. But Paul was okay with that. Paul knew who he was. Paul knew whose he was. And with his situation securely, rather, in the Lord's hands, Paul was confident that what occurred would bring glory to God, regardless of how it turned out. That confidence now prompted him to say in verse 25, I know that I will remain. In other words, it's not time for God to take me home yet. And this declaration reveals Paul's conviction about both what needed to happen and what would most likely happen. I mean, he would eventually be released from the first Roman imprisonment. His missionary travels would continue. He would continue to disciple others through the ministry of his epistles to the churches and to others. And simply put, the great ongoing need of many for Paul's gospel ministry outweighed his own need to be with Christ immediately. And evidence from the pastoral letters, those to Timothy and to Titus, confirmed by early historical testimony, uh, tell us that Paul was, in fact, released from this first Roman imprisonment. That's the salvation that he referenced in verse 19. And he began to travel, including a trip through Macedonia, presumably to Philippi, before being imprisoned again later and eventually suffering a martyr's death by the decree of Roman Emperor Nero. But every thought that Paul had, every decision he made, was about putting Christ first others second, and himself last. And and that's so counterintuitive to the way we're conditioned to think, isn't it? We're conditioned to think that life is about three things, me, myself, and I. I am the center of the universe. Selfish ambition. Every decision I make must be in my best interest. Got to look out for numero uno. Got to get mine. Oh, and if somebody else gets stepped on along the way, so be it. You see, that's how the world thinks. That's not how Paul thought. He was about the growth of Christ's church. Verse 25, he says, I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. And he was all about the glory of Christ's name. 
so that your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. In verse 26, he says, he says, I want you to see your growth. I want to see your growth, your, your joy. I want to see you bragging on Jesus. Church, may we be all about the same. You see, all this Jesus stuff, it's not just religious fervor and pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking for some afterlife fairyland. It's about a real Savior with real love, with real power to heal, to, to set free those who are captive to sin, and to transform lives. Tony Merida, a North Carolina pastor and associate professor of preaching, at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote this. He said, My friend Joel led a church planting program in Kiev, Ukraine for over 10 years. He used to have a map hanging in his office that was dotted with pictures of church planters leading churches all across the former Soviet Union. On a visit to Kiev, I showed a friend this map on Joel's wall. I pointed to Emmanuel from Lithuania, a massive guy with tattoos on every finger. Emmanuel once described how, while in prison, he would rip out pages of the Bible, fill the paper with marijuana, and proceed to puff away. But now, Emmanuel is no longer in prison, and he no longer smokes the Bible. Now, he preaches the Bible. So how in the world does a person go from smoking the Bible and living in opposition to the gospel to preaching the Bible and telling others about the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, how did Paul, a terrorist against the church, become Christ's champion and the greatest evangelist the world has ever known? Well, the answer to both is simple. Jesus changes lives. That Lithuanian man, Emmanuel, he found a far greater joy in knowing and sharing Jesus. And so did Paul. And so should we. You see, the secret is this. When you have your mind fixed on Christ, when you make him the most important thing, then you look on your circumstances as God-given opportunities for the forwarding of the gospel. And like Paul you rejoice at what God is going to do instead of complaining about what God didn't do. And whenever difficulties affect our lives, be sure to have an attitude that says, Lord, whatever comes, I want Christ to be glorified. And this is the secret of Christian joy. And this is the big idea behind today's passage. Okay, so what should we take away from all of this? How should we take Paul's example and put it to work in our own lives? Well, let me give you three suggestions, three action steps, if you will. Action step number one, survey. Survey. Examine your life. Ask yourself what you spend most of your time and money on. And whatever that is, well, that's likely your top priority. Then take a few moments to repent of desiring other things more than your Savior. And ask the Father to wean you off of the pleasures of sin and of this world. Then reorder your life to make Christ number one. Treasure Him above all else. So survey and then serve. 
serve. Make others' needs more important than your own. Pray for people you don't ordinarily pray for. Uh, pray for your critics and attackers or your enemies, you know, those people in dark places. Think about people in other churches. Pray for each of them to know Christ and to make Christ known. Then get down to the business of serving. Reach out to people who need the gospel. All right, so survey, serve. Now here's the third and last one. Subordinate. Subordinate. In other words, refuse to make yourself the center of the universe. Instead of insisting that you're the boss, determine to make Christ first, others second, and yourselves last. You see, that's real joy. Saying whatever comes, I'm putting Christ first. So what about you? Do you know the kind of joy that no circumstance in life can rob you of? Do you know the peace Paul talked about in Philippians 4? The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, that guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, as he said in Philippians 4, 7? Do you want to be free from the burden of sin? Do you want to turn chains into victory? Do you want to know joy unspeakable? Then come to Jesus today. You see, we were created for a relationship with God, but something messed that up. Our sin. It separates us from him. But God created a solution for that. Jesus died on the cross in our place to pay a holy God the penalty for our sin. And then he rose from the dead to prove that everything he is, everything he said, everything he did is true. And he did it for your peace, for your joy, not just for a fleeting moment, but for eternity. And now he gives you a choice. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you, and you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.